Welcome to a very special series of Easter Explores. On the 31st of March 2021, the European Space Agency opened applications for its first astronaut selection in over a decade. In this series, we delve a bit deeper into the role and the attributes of ESA astronauts with a few of the people who know them best. Along the way, we discover there are so many different opportunities to work in space exploration, and there's no one linear pathway to getting there. We hope you enjoy this journey behind the scenes, and if you are applying to ESA's astronaut selection, we wish you best of luck. You'll find everything you need to know online at esa.int slash yourwaytospace. I'm Ali Kohler, Stephen Ennis is on the sound desk, and this is ESA Explores. This. Nie. Ato. Seven. Seis. Fünf. Stere. Drei. Dwa. One. We continue our space careers and astronaut selection series with Sergi Fakir Araho. Sergi is a senior flight surgeon at ESA. Flight surgeons are medical doctors who look after astronaut health and well-being before, during, and after a space mission. It's not just Sergi, of course. He's part of a team of flight surgeons. There are also exercise specialists, biomedical engineers, and more who make sure that our astronauts are in good health and able to perform at their best. In this podcast, Sergi talks about his own pathway to space medicine, and he also touches on the space medicine aspects of the upcoming astronaut selection. If we have any Spanish speakers listening, you may be interested in watching the briefing with Sergi that was conducted at the start of the astronaut selection period. You can find this on the website esa.int slash yourwaytospace, along with all the information you need to apply. Wonderful to have you on. And I know it's a very busy time for you, a busy time for space flight, because we have not just one, but three astronauts who are preparing for missions in space. And of course, we have the astronaut selection coming up, which you're also involved in. So I understand your title is Senior Flight Surgeon. Can you just start by telling us what exactly is that and, and what's your role? As a member of the Easter team, um, my role is to coordinate all that has to do with medical operations for human spaceflight um, at Easter. I'm doing that under the command of Guillaume Verts, the head of our team. And we have a team of uh, in total flight surgeons, including me, uh, to provide healthcare to our astronaut course. What does that involve? You're, you're like a GP or you're, how does it work? It is actually partially something like a GP. Yes, indeed. So the idea is that we have to keep our crew members fit for flight and we have to keep them safe and healthy during the flight. And we want to have them back to flight status as soon as possible when they come back. You can already see that we have like three phases of healthcare here. We take care uh, before the flight, preparing them, you know, putting them ready for, for going to space. Then during space flight, we monitor them and we do several tests to make sure that they keep healthy during the flight. And then when they come back, uh, the idea is to rehabilitate them, you know, restore all those things that have been changed during the flight into a normal, you know, physiological status and be ready to, you know, fly again. And so for you as a doctor, did you enter into your medical training thinking, okay, I want to work with astronauts in space or how did you come to be in this role? Um, as many people, I guess, at East, I mean, uh, I was amazed uh, with space and space flights since, you know, very early in my life. It amazed me. I was 
you know, look at biology. I liked medicine, um, so I just took that as a, as an education. Um, so I studied medicine, uh, and already during my medical school in the university, I started, you know, recalling those all those dreams of space flight and flying into space, and say, how could I join those things? And my, you know, passion for medicine, passion for space. So already during my, my medical studies, I started, you know, working in a project on a project for a parabolic flight with a team that uh, I think I'm, I was amazed at what our team was able to do. And we, we, we managed to get one of those fly users flights. And it was an extraordinary experience that taught us uh, a lot of things. And then, then actually that was a little bit like a trigger. I want to do this. I want to I be involved in space flight. And then it was kind of logical for me. I took the specialty of intensive care because in intensive care, you have to know a lot of physiology to understand what's going on with a critical patient. And when you understand a lot of physiology, understanding what happens to an astronaut is quite straightforward. It makes sense. You know, body reacts as it should, actually. Mm-hmm. So, so that was a good background. Getting involved more and more in ISTA, and then in 2015, I, I got into the team. Right. And so we've talked a little bit earlier in the series, we talked with Jennifer Noan about the different challenges facing the human body in spaceflight. And she touched on a few things. She touched on radiation and, and, and other bits and pieces. So what is it that you have to be aware of as a doctor or conscious of as a flight surgeon when the astronauts are going to space? What do you look out for in, in these areas? So many, many things, actually. I need to tell you that every single system, almost all systems of the human body get affected some in a different way because of you know microgravity in spaceflight. And, and funny thing here is that uh, those changes happen not simultaneously and with different intensities. Uh, and difficult enough for all of us, some of them never reach what we call clinical threshold, meaning that the, the astronaut or you can detect them by just doing simple exploration or assessments of the patient. And because they just are they're just silent, they're there. One example is bone loss. Bone loss, no body feels bone loss. You see, but it's happening. And you discover it has happened if someone breaks a leg, you see? <laughs> so that's something you need to be aware of, but nobody's going to complain about it. And like the same thing with cardiovascular deconditioning, you know, the atrophy of your uh, heart muscle, the inability to maintain properly blood pressure. When you're in space flight, I mean, with a little bit of training, we keep it. But then you've seen that some astronauts, more in the old times when we didn't have uh, all those good training methods, would come in a very bad shape back uh, to Earth. And that's when you realize that something was going on and <laughs> that you couldn't see in space. And so, yeah, as you say, that's why we have all these countermeasure programs and, and training programs and things. So as part of the wider medical team, you know, it's not just flight surgeons, it's physical trainers and biomedical engineers and things I understand as well. That's completely correct. It would be completely unfair to say that this is a flight surgeon task. Not at all. Actually, the flight surgeon is maybe the end to make certain decisions or bring the medical knowledge. But no, this is a team effort that has to do more on the cooperative work of different domains. Have a look. We have to put the human, which is, you know, an animal in the end, that has certain requirements that need to be fulfilled. I mean, I'm talking about oxygen, pressure, water, temperature. And for that, you need someone that understands how the machine which is going to host them, works. And I have no clue about engineering. So we do need a huge team of engineers that actually can make this bridge, that understand how the metal works, the ISS works, and, and how that is going to keep our animal, our human, our homo sapiens alive. And for that, if, for instance, if, if they tell me, well, uh, CIDRA, a carbon dioxide removal assembly that takes care of carbon dioxide has failed, I say, okay, so what? <laughs> they have to explain to me that that will mean that in so many hours, CO2 is going to go up. And by that level, we were going to reach you know, certain levels that we will have to use alternative methods to scrub it. And if not, 
you know, in two days we may get we may get into a trouble. So that's one example, for instance. Uh, then we have a team of exercise specialists because one of our main countermeasures for everything that happens in space is physical training. That's a preparation before the flight. That's in the flight, and that's a, that that's the drug, the, the medication we administer. It has a duration. It has a dose. Uh, it has an intensity. It has a periodicity. So many times. So actually once per day, two hours more or less, to six days per week. So that has to be controlled by someone who knows about sports scientists, because actually not all parts of the muscular and skeletal system degrade the same way. So you have to even tailor the exercise you give. So the medication has to be tailored to each one of the astronauts, making it very, very complex. So have a look. Um, the surgeon actually is, is, a little, is a little piece in the, in the huge puzzle, actually. And, and one area in which you've been as you say, a little piece, but I'm sure it's more than that, is the launches and landings of the astronauts. I know you've been involved in quite a few now, but it's changing. So Thomas is going to be flying SpaceX and, and Matthias too, and, and we're yet to see with Samantha. But does that change your role in launch and landing? or How does that affect you? Yes, I used to do a lot of uh, launch and landings, a lot of landings, actually. That was, my, that was the reason why I was hired initially. But now I have taken a more managerial position to coordinate actually the activities. Now all the other surgeons are going to take over and are taking over actually. For instance, for commercial vehicles, I am no longer the expert. Dr. Koipus is the expert and, and she's going to be developed that new vehicle and the launches and landings associated with them. It's a different job and, and other people will be taking over that task. Uh, yes, we, talk, we spoke to Maybury actually on the um, Beyond series about Luca. So we heard her experiences there. So that's a good point. Perhaps we get in touch with her once she's had this experience with Tomar and see how that's changed for her. It's not just physical, though, is it? We've talked a bit about the physical impacts, but I mean, as we've all learned over the past year, time in isolation can have mental health impacts that can't be underestimated. Is, is that something that you and your team support as well? Absolutely. Psychology and psychiatry is, is just another dimension. Mental health is part of health, actually. Health is not just physical health. It's the state of well-being also. Um, and mental health is there. Um, we have a team of psychologists that, that take care of the astronauts before the flight and in the flight and after the flight. And they are there just to take care of the soul dimension of the whole holistic concept of health. They will talk to the astronauts twice a month. They can talk to them whenever they want. The astronauts can call the psychologists whenever they want. And yes, you need to, to understand that this is a marathon-like mission. Um, and it has happened, for instance, in Skylab. And people can check that uh, there was an issue because of too much uh, too much work overwork. And what happened was a stress reaction in terms of you know they just stopped communicating with the ground because they had they needed their time. The ability of an expert to assess what is the, the mental status of an astronaut, how the astronaut is coping with all the problems, all the stress, and all the all the workload, and and it can have an impact on the mission if that person, for instance, starts to be burnout. We have to detect those things. They are human, and we're sending them on almost complete isolation for six months, separating them from the rest of the world. They are very capable, of course, and they are performing better than any other average human, but they are still humans. And they will have limits, and, and we have to take those limits. And that's why just mental health is another dimension of you know the healthcare we provide. Mm -hmm. And it's I guess it's wrapped up in in crew support as well. There's um, people who are making sure that the astronauts' well-being is looked after, both on the the medical side and the crew support side too. Absolutely, yes. The other thing that that we mentioned at the start is the astronaut selection. Can you tell me how you're involved in that? 
So my first involvement was in the press conference uh, representing what has to do with medical aspects of the selection uh, at the Spanish press conference. Uh, later on, the surgeons will, will be involved in assessing the medical results of the medical testing that happened, I think, is the third phase, if I'm not mistaken, if not the fourth phase of the selection. There, um, we're going to be looking for people that have no, no illnesses and that don't have no addictions, tobacco, alcohol, or any other drug, of course that have a full functionality on, on, on all four limbs, and that has a caveat, as we can talk later, with the para-astronaut project, and that passed a class two medical certificate initially. So we will receive most likely people that are, in principle, already healthy. Now those tests will go more in getting to know that person physically. It's going to be an in and out selection, meaning that if you are sufficiently healthy, you pass. There's not going to be such a thing as grades of health or that you're more healthy than another one. If you fulfill minimum requirements and you pass. And so I've heard a few times that we're not looking for, you know, world-class athletes and then that kind of supports that. So if you're, you're meeting these requirements, then you pass. So one of the things that people need also to remember in the selection of, of an astronaut is this image of an all-capable astronaut or a tip-top person that can do amazing things. It is real. Astronauts are above average and they are very capable. But it's very important that people understand that we're not looking for someone who is extremely good at something at the cost of not being so good at other things. And I give you an example. Astronauts have to do such a myriad of different things. It's so wide what they have to do. They have to be good communicators. They have to be good, good scientists, be engineers. They have to be doctors because if there's a medical problem, they have to take care. But they have to know about medicine and many other things. So if someone is extremely good at engineering, but really, really, really physically, for instance, bad, that's a selection disqualification, you see? And if someone is a very poor communicator and is unable to talk publicly, even if he's good at many other things, that's also disqualifying. Don't, you do not have to be excellent on everything. You have to be just good on everything, you see? So you mentioned as well the para-astronaut feasibility project, and, and that's an interesting one. We're seeing whether it could be possible to send someone who's living with disabilities into space. Can you tell me more about, about that? Yes, uh, we are spearheading here. Nobody around the world in the history of human spaceflight has ever tried such a thing. Europe, as you know, is diverse, diverse in sex, uh, in religion, in, in ethnicity. And there is also diversity in capabilities, not disabilities, capabilities. We had this open topic that we haven't tackled, which was the different capacities of people. And we believe everybody and our European population should be represented in our astronauts completely. So that was a great move from our management. I think it's, it's a very good move to finally try to make this feasibility study, so to make feasible that then someone with a disability can fly. Now, it has a lot of problems, and we need to be completely honest. It's not going to be easy. What we're showing here is a commitment, a commitment to invest uh, time, effort uh, in developing the technology that allows people with a person or with disability to fly to space. And one of the challenges here is that we don't have, we don't own a vehicle. So we'll have to convince the owners of the vehicles that, that with the adaptations we create, the flight is going to be safe and useful. Huh? So it's the two criteria here that, that it's safe for everybody, not just the astronaut or our astronaut, but also everybody else in that flight. And that it's useful that it has a purpose and it can be accomplished. So that's our commitment, but it's difficult. And because we are not experts on that domain, we have teamed up with the Paralympic Committee, the Paralympic International Committee. And they have a very long story of evaluating different capabilities or different levels of ability. In the initial analysis, it was decided that uh, in order to do this feasibility assessment of whether this would be possible or not, 
to start just including problems or the abilities or different abilities that affect the lower limbs, meaning amputation or missing of a congenital miss of, a, of one foot or two, foot or two feet, or a leg or the two legs below the knee, or a difference in the height, um, or sorry, in the length of the leg, um, significant one, and then a shorter stature, short, short stature. That doesn't mean we're not going to go further. It's just that we have to start somewhere because of the complexity of the issue. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just the start of the journey. And I think Samantha Cristoforetti, our astronaut, put it really well when she said none of us evolved to go to space and it's the technology that enables us to live there. So we just need to adapt that technology, like you say. So it's a really exciting time. It'll be exciting to see, um, you know, the applicants that come through for that and really encouraging anyone who, who thinks that they might be qualified to take a look at the website isa.int slash your way to space and have a look and see if you meet the criteria and if you do if you meet the minimum criteria as we've said please put yourself forward if you're interested in becoming an astronaut and let the team at ESA get to know your application and, and see whether we might take you further so thanks very much Sergi, for talking us through everything that you do today well I'm sure it's not everything that you do but a slice of what you do is there any, any tips or advice or final words you'd like to give to anyone who might be thinking about a career in space? Just go for it. That would be my first advice. It's amazing. Um, East is looking for 100 people per year uh, in the next 10 years because of a generational turnover that needs to happen. And that's a lot of opportunities in huge amount of domains that go from engineering to medicine, as you see, to PR, you know, administration, uh, management, many different uh, many different things uh, within ISA. It, it's exciting to see that you're part of something bigger, and it's exciting to see that you're doing something that makes a historical difference. Everything that we do at ISA, it's almost all the time the first in history. You see the first mass sample return mission that will be the first European uh, on the moon. That's where we're going. The first para-astronaut. It's really, really exciting to be part of such a thing. Yeah, making history and shaping the future. It's very exactly. cool indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much. To find out more about ESA's 2021 astronaut selection, visit the website esa.int slash yourwaytospace. That's yourwayto-space. Thanks for listening to ESA Explores. If you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes of the podcast, don't hesitate to get in touch via Twitter at ESA Spaceflight using the hashtag ESA Explores.